From Entrepreneur Media, this is Problem Solvers, a show in which entrepreneurs do what entrepreneurs do best, solve unexpected problems in their business. We were completely wrong. And I'm just like, it's not selling. It was like, we have to start from scratch. I'm Jason Pfeiffer, the editor-in-chief of Entrepreneur Magazine. If there is one word we hate, it is the word bureaucracy. I I mean, I guess it's the concept of bureaucracy we hate, although I I actually hate the word bureaucracy too, because I just can never remember how to spell it, but maybe that's a separate problem. Anyway, the thing is, bureaucracy feels like the end of progress. It is a system that is beyond repair. And if we are in the business of building something, then I guess our greatest goal is to not build bureaucracy. But what does that even mean? <laughs> you know. And also, is there a way in which bureaucracy can be useful or at least fixed? I joined the federal government 10 years ago, believing that big bureaucracies are irreparably broken. You can't do anything to fix them. I was really wrong, and I wanted to write it down so everybody else could learn from my mistakes. This is Marina. Hey, I'm Marina Nitza, and I just wrote a new book called Hack Your Bureaucracy. And Marina and her co-author, Nick Sinai, say, you know, look, okay, fine. So they were in government, and uh, now they're not always talking to people like you listening, probably, uh, who are not in government. You're in business. And they say, look, the, the, the problems of government are not actually limited to government, and the solutions are not limited to government either. That bureaucracy can take many forms in many different places. We must be mindful of it and also be open to that there are solutions. There are ways to fix or at least hack our bureaucracies. Yeah. So there's a Frank Sinatra song, My Way, that says, if you made it here in New York City, you can make it anywhere. So these tactics work in the White House, the Department of Defense, the VA. They absolutely work in business when you're trying to cut through licensing red tape, you're trying to disrupt an industry, or even trying to fix your kid's PTA. I will admit, I think the scariest of all of that was trying to fix the kid's PTA. (laughs) I'm not touching that. Anyway, here's why I wanted to talk to Marina. Because when I talk to entrepreneurs, I find that you know, especially if they're in those earlier stages, they're often afraid of creating systems. And, you know, at that point, they're not thinking about bureaucracy so much. Bureaucracy sounds like it's much bigger than where they are, but rather they see systems as an inhibitor of creative thought. They think that, oh, if I create this system, then gone will be the days where we have free-flowing ideas and we can explore new things. And funny enough, the thing that I hear from leaders of more advanced companies is that, Actually, that's a mistake in understanding because systems can create freedom because it gives you a way to focus your conversations. It gives you a way to organize people and to avoid a kind of mission creep that takes you in too many different directions. So that's why I was excited to talk to Marina to bring in her perspective about how systems, yes, they can create bureaucracy and they can slow everything down but they do not have to crush innovative spirit. They can be a tool that we can use. How do we do that though? Well, that is what we are talking about today on Problem Solvers. Marina is taking the lessons and some very funny stories from ridiculous government bureaucracies. I will say, as much as we hate government bureaucracies, I think we all probably love hearing stories of government bureaucracies because it's just like, huh, at least I don't work there. Anyway, that is what we're digging in. She has great stories. She has great advice. It is very applicable to you no matter where you go, even if you are going to tackle, God bless you, your kid's PTA. Coming up after the break. Whether you need digital tools so you can bank on the go, or you need a one-on-one with an experienced business banker with PNC Bank, 
You got it. PNC's business banking team is built entirely around the way you like to do business. Innovative mobile tools that let you manage your cash flow, monitor your payments, and more around the clock give you the flexibility that every business owner needs. And PNC combines those digital tools with a team of business bankers who are ready to sit down and talk about the unique needs of your business and help you develop personalized strategies to move your business forward. Learn how PNC Bank can make a difference for you and your business at pnc.com slash bank your way. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. All right, we're back and we're talking bureaucracy, but fun bureaucracy, or at least a fun conversation about bureaucracy. Bureaucracies aren't that fun. Okay, let's start at the beginning. As a company is growing and as layers of management start to happen, as layers of review start to happen, as something starts to look a little more like bureaucracy, I had asked Marina, what should the builder of this hopefully not terrible bureaucracy be thinking? Yeah, I love the idea of proactive bureaucracy prevention. And something we (laughs) tried to find when we were writing the book was actually an example of an organization that wasn't a bureaucracy. And so I would suggest that just because your processes aren't written down doesn't mean that your startup, even if it's three people, still has a bureaucracy in some form. Our hunt for a non-bureaucracy literally led us to a co-op grocery store in Berkeley, California that had not written down any of any rules. And it turns out that there were absolutely still rules and processes. And in some ways, they were even harder because when they're not written down, there's other ways that your team is going to communicate about how you get decisions, how you get resources, et cetera. So if I were trying to make, uh, I don't know that you can prevent bureaucracy so much as you can make it work for you. And if I was trying to accomplish that, I would say that the clearer that you make your decision-making processes and frameworks, the more clearly that you think about it every step, what are the risks and incentive frameworks that I'm setting up here? And how can I align those to get people to do the right thing quickly? The less bureaucratic process you're going to have and the more impact you're going to have. You know, Marina, it's funny that when you said make bureaucracy work for you, it made me think I only hear the word bureaucracy as if it is a bad thing. But is bureaucracy as a concept actually a neutral thing and we only focus on the times in which it doesn't work? And then we think of that, that like that dysfunction as bureaucracy? We believe that's the case, that bureaucracy is a neutral term. And it's something that we're all operating in all the time. It's at work, it's in our government, it's in our homeowners association, it's in our local zoning ordinances. And if we learn how to work and take advantage of the natural rhythms of the bureaucracy, then we can make it work for us. If we want to like lay back and lament and complain about it, it's still going to keep existing and we're just going to suffer. So may as well learn how it works. So, all right, uh, let's talk about how to do the things that you just described there, which is basically how to lay out good decision-making processes. This sounds very valuable, but it also sounds like a hard thing to build on a piece of paper. As you were growing a team, you have to advise people how to do this and that. And, and also, just to make my question more complicated, can you also describe what it looks like when this is done poorly? Oh boy, I have a lot of examples of when it's done poorly, absolutely. Because then it's kind of... a uh like a Sherlock Holmes hunt where you try to understand how the bureaucracy actually works. And so a lot of times bureaucracy is the larger it is and the older your organization gets, there's a lot of water cooler rules. And those may be leftover great intentions from the CEO even. So those are the things I would say like you got to guard against as an entrepreneur is where are you saying like, oh, everybody's naturally going to understand why we have this step and that it's meant for good. And then the step will be used against you later. And so a technique we suggest in the book, whatever the size of your organization is, is to really literally lay out what is the decision-making process and where did each step come from? This might sound a little bit crazy, but gosh, if I was an entrepreneur starting a new org, when I had a new policy or rule, I would like cite why it, where it came from and like literally write down the, the origin path, even if it was like in a Slack channel or something. 
Because later on, people will be like, oh, that's, you know, always been the case or it's it's federal law or, you know, it must, we must print this on blue paper. And then you discover over time that that's actually not the case at all. But then what happens when this scales? Because I imagine you don't eventually want this like giant encyclopedia sized document about every rule and where it came from, right? It's like, I love what you're saying in theory, because it makes things not feel arbitrary. But when there's too much of it, I suppose at some point you have to accept that nobody's going to read this enormous thing. I think that's totally fair. I've heard some people propose actually that like rules and policies should expire after a certain time. Like if you haven't Mm. used it in a few years, I think that's pretty novel and interesting of an approach. And I think also the decisions processes that you have regularly as a company, who's getting resources, what's the time frame, like how are you going to be rewarded in a position description or your performance review? Those are things that can change over time. It doesn't have to be you know, a stone tablet with the entire history of position descriptions over time. (laughs) It should just be like, what's the performance for this quarter and making sure that you're staying on top of it being updated and crisp. And then how do you make sure that the people who are going to follow this, like appreciate and understand it? Because it's one thing to set uh, processes that people should follow. It's another thing to get people to follow them. This is something that I deal with. I'll be transparent. Like, So at Entrepreneur Magazine or Entrepreneur Media, which is the parent company, we run into this problem all the time. It is, here's a standard situation where like, I'll need some random thing done and I need it to be done by the dev team. And I kind of forgot the way to actually send a request to the dev team because it doesn't happen that often. It requires like signing into this thing. And so that's I lose my password. And so instead, I just email Jake, the CTO, because, you know, I'm the editor in chief and he's the CTO and I could just reach out directly to him. But now I know that when I do that, Jake basically has to deal with me. <laughs> he's got to stop doing whatever the normal process is and instead go to this other thing. And that's that's not efficient for Jake. Like what I'm doing is, I guess, efficient for me, but it's not efficient for him. But now he's got to react to it. It sort of creates this inefficiency in the system. It's my fault, right? I, this is entirely a problem of my own making, but it's because the system that was created is one that I sort of forgot or wasn't able to follow well enough. So apologies to Jake, first of all, but what are we all supposed to do here so that everybody understands what to do and everybody follows it? Yeah, in that case, Jake might need to manage up or he mm. might need to say like, all right, these these emails are going to come in and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plop them into our normal process and send you back a support ticket with the tracker on it. So like, there's different ways to look at like, all right, there's going to be seven different inputs. Rather than trying to, you know, hammer everybody into the one single way, I think you've got to acknowledge that there's going to be different ones and and build that flexibility into your process. What you don't want is Jake taking your tickets, though, and like knocking over the entire sprint process, you know, on a Thursday evening because your priority, you know, is going to supplant something else that might be a production bug that you really need to take care of. Yeah, that's a great point. What are some other things that people need to keep in mind? We've talked a lot about processes and decision making, but what are some other things that creators of a fresh new (laughs) baby bureaucracy are going to do to hopefully grow that thing into a nice mature bureaucracy? What should they be mindful of? Maybe, Maybe some classic missteps of people who build these things. Yeah. So one of the tactics that's incredibly effective in large bureaucracies that you could totally protect against is the concept of looking between the silos. So the larger an organization gets and the more steps there are, oftentimes nobody ever owns that end-to-end process. You're like, okay, this is now accounting's department or like this is this, this team's and this is this team's and never the twain shall meet. And I think you can defend against that by making sure someone does own end-to-end processes, whether it's the, the customer experience, the user experience, you're saying the, the experience of filing a, a tech bug, right? 
Um, I have a fun story around this. I work in foster care reform these days. And one of my goals is helping states streamline their foster parent application processes. And the, the secret to all this work is really that I just follow one application from start to finish. If it goes through a fax machine, I show up on the other side of the fax machine and so on. And I was doing this in one state and they were requesting an applicant's driving record and they were doing it on carbon copy paper. You know, the paper where you press really hard oh, yeah. and it's like four colors. Yeah, yeah. And she's complaining to me. She's like, oh my God, the DMV, they live in the 19th century. Why do they make me send this like horrible paper? Why don't they have like an email system? And I did the thing that that employee was not empowered to do, which is I wandered over the DMV and I said, hey, can you show me how you process these requests? And the woman pulls up an electronic system and she's like, yeah, we get them in through email and then I process them same day. And I was like, well, wait a minute. I saw some carbon copy paper. And she says, oh my God, you are child welfare. Those people live in the 19th century. They're sending me this carbon copy paper. Like, why don't they just email me their requests like everybody else? And that must happen in my job every day in some capacity. And you can, if you think about it, like think about how easily you could defend against that if there was a product owner of the foster parent application process who understood the, that's the steps in that handoff and when the electronic step was available, got rid of the carbon copy paper 20 years ago. We're going to take a short break and then come back with more fixing bureaucracy. How do you find opportunities in hard situations? And are you ready to reach your wouldn't go back moment? That's what I help you do in my new book, which is called Build for Tomorrow. It's a guide to help anyone who's going through a big change in their work or life and is full of exercises, lessons, and big concepts you need to know, like how to work your next job and how to change before you must, along with stories from the smartest people in business and the history of innovation. Stuff that, frankly, I learned while making this podcast and then I expand it to figure out how it can help you because this book is designed to help you thrive. Reinvention, it's not about grit. It's a process anyone can learn. And since this book has come out, I've heard from so many people who said it helped them figure out what they really want and then go get it. Build for Tomorrow is available in hardcover, audiobook, and ebook, and you can find it wherever you find books, whether that's Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local retailer, or jasonpfeiffer.com slash book. Again, my book is called Build for Tomorrow. All right, we're back. You know, Marina, that's a fascinating story that you uh, tell for all sorts of reasons. Uh, one is because, I mean, we've been talking about things that are directly relevant to entrepreneurs, but I think that people also just have a fascination about why things are bureaucratically broken in the government that they engage with. I'll give you an example. My family and I just moved. And so we changed addresses and I wanted to update my voter registration. And so I went onto New York State's website to do this. And I learned that there's actually no system to do this. You can't change your voter registration online. You also can't really change your voter registration. What you have to do is re-register to vote, like fill out the exact same form. And then it, it seems you can't even do that electronically. What you got to do is they, they can give you the PDF and you can print out the form, but the form is in a weird shape, so it won't print out of a normal printer. So, you know, then you, you have to sort of request a form to be mailed to you. And anyway, I'm looking at all this and I'm thinking, why is it like this? Just this seems so deeply, aggressively inefficient. Why is it like this? So here you are, Marina, you're telling me a story of a similar problem. And the lesson from that story is that you said that there's somebody at some point in the chain that just did not simply 
update their part of the process. And because there's nobody who's overseeing the entire process from start to finish, you end up with this kind of nonsense process. There's no coordination. Is that basically what's happening all the time? <laughs> like, why the hell can't I update my voter registration address online? I know you can't speak to that specifically, but hearing this is, I'm sure, a version of something you see a lot. So what is happening in those kinds of breakdowns? I bet I, I uh, not having been there personally over the voter registration, it's because nobody designed it at all. I think the larger the organizations are, people really have a belief that there's like an evil guy on the 12th floor that's like maliciously trying to keep you from, you know, getting your rebate in 30 days or getting your refund in whatever amount of time. And like the organization would be so much better if there was an evil guy on the 12th floor because the rest of us would just put a chair under his doorknob and like get on with our day. What's actually happening is that these processes were never designed at all. And they usually have no one who owns that end-to-end process. And this is a thing you can absolutely defend against where you can look in your performance reviews. Like, what are you measuring your employees against so that they can, like, what behaviors are you driving? Do you have a product owner for end-to-end things? If you have a contract, does it have a KPI related to the thing you're actually trying to accomplish? When I was chief technology officer of the VA, we had this huge crisis where there was a a warehouse of 800,000 pending paper applications from veterans. 100,000 of them had died waiting for us to get to their piece of paper in that warehouse, which is unforgivable. And, uh, there was an online application to apply for healthcare that only eight veterans had ever used in the history of time. And the VA was like, oh, well, veterans must not use the internet then. All 20 million veterans in America, they must not use the internet. But speaking of poorly designed, I mean, the PDF required such an old version of Adobe that you had to use like, you know, the Ramada in Windows XP computer to get to it. (laughs) So the reason eight people ever used it is because nobody could get to it. And there was nowhere in the contract that ever said like, we're paying millions of dollars so that veterans could get healthcare. Like nowhere in the KPIs was like, you should be able to get healthcare through this process. And no matter how small your organization is, you can think through those early on and often and measuring that you're actually achieving those end end KPIs. Huh. Uh, That's really useful insight. It doesn't make my blood boil any less, but at least now I know there's not a single person to blame. Okay, Marina, let me ask you a final question, which is actually building off of the only piece of insight that I personally have about government bureaucracy, having never worked in the government. But I did have this very interesting conversation a while ago, and I want to share it here because I think that there's a lesson for entrepreneurs and I'd love your feedback on it. So, okay, this conversation happened years ago, long enough ago that I've forgotten a bunch of the details, including exactly who I spoke to, but it basically went like this. I I was uh, working on a story and I interviewed this general, military general or something who had been put in charge with figuring out how to create a better pipeline from Silicon Valley innovators to the Pentagon, right? Like the question was, why does the U.S. military not have access to the greatest technology that Americans are building? And the Pentagon wanted to understand this. And so they had tasked this military general with going and figuring this out so that he could build relationships and thus improve the the government's access to great technology and innovation. And so that's what he does. He goes out there, he starts talking to people in Silicon Valley, and he finds that one of the biggest problems is that for companies to win government jobs, they have to respond to these government RFPs, requests for proposal for people who don't know. And because the government RFP process is so complicated and burdensome, it turns off anybody who does not already know how to 
respond to these things. And therefore, it rewards the wrong thing. It does not reward good technology building because this process sort of weeds out people who are building good technology. Instead, what it rewards is people who are really good at responding to government RFPs. So that was a problem that he had to address, which was basically like, how do I help these Silicon Valley people not have to go through that process? Because that process has created a reverse incentive for what the Pentagon actually wants, which of course is access to good technology. And that story always stuck with me as a lesson in how systems can create wrong incentives. And, you know, because I I mean, obviously the intention of the government RFP process, I assume, I've never seen it in my life, but I I assume that, you know, nobody ever set out to make this thing so complicated that the winners would just be whoever specializes in government RFPs. But whatever the original intention, that is where we're at. That's not a good outcome. And now they're trying to fix that. Can you speak to me about maybe other ways in which you've seen something like that play out where a system drives the wrong incentive and how we can think better about that? Absolutely, that you are spot on with that. Um, And I see it in HR. And I think you can also turn that on its head a little bit where you can think about, so let's say you're an entrepreneur that you want to hire like problem solvers that can work in a really hairy like space, really challenging space. You might actually add friction to your hiring process so that you'd weed out people that are like going to whine at you if you don't hear back from them in like 12 hours. So mm. there, there can be benefits to desi- actively and thoughtfully designing your process to get the end outcomes that you want. You're completely correct about RFPs. And I think the same can be about hiring in most organizations. I mean, this is absolutely even an entrepreneur. You know, who are you hiring for? What's your hiring process? What's your slate like? What's your diversity like? Because if you end up with, you know, 20 other people that look and think just like you with the same experience as you, you may miss out to competitors that have a more diverse uh, and varied background and way of approaching problems. Huh. Uh, Marina, thank you. This was really fun. Actually, a final, final question just for funsies, because I just figure you'll have a fun answer to this. (laughs) Can you share one, like the dysfunction in government that you saw that made you slap your forehead the most and just be like, oh, I cannot believe that this is the system that we have unintentionally built. Yeah, talk about incentives. So when I started at the VA uh, in 2013, we weren't allowed to use cloud computing services and our websites had, you know, business hours like eight to five. And when you got to the root cause, it was because the inspector general said you couldn't put the cloud in an evidence bag. And so we spent two years and I actually added this as an interview question in my hiring process. How do you put the cloud in an evidence bag? It's kind of a riddle. And the the process there ended up being that you show the inspector general how like search and investigation tools work in a cloud computing environment. And so my, the coup of my entire career was getting the IG to have a memo saying they preferred logical access to putting computers in evidence bags, which was, was pretty great, but kind of a funny story. Amazing. You are doing a service to humanity. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> it. And that's our episode. I would love to hear what you think and maybe even about a problem that you solved. You can find me at my website, jasonpfeiffer.com. J-A-S-O-N-F-E-I-F-E-R.com. Also, I have some more useful stuff for you. I write a newsletter about how to future-proof yourself and become more adaptable and optimistic. I would love for you to sign up. It is at jasonpfeiffer.bulletin.com. Also, check out my other podcast. It's called Build for Tomorrow. In each episode, I take on some belief that we have that holds us back from progress and show you why it is not as bad as you think. 
Problem Solvers is a production of Entrepreneur Media and comes out every Monday morning, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks to Deepa Shah for production. My name is Jason Pfeiffer. See you next week.